0: Like a sense of deja vu here. Yeah? I think I led last week and Adele preached. She'll pray for you again. Groundhog Day, yeah. Father, we thank you for the privilege of having your word and we pray for Adele that you would speak clearly through her, that we might understand your word to us for today. Give us grace to be people who are counted amongst the wise, who hear and respond rightly to your word. Amen. In the text we've just heard, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures or the power of God. A couple of weeks ago, we discovered that our dogs had a really bad case of fleas. And it was solely because of a lack of communication between husband and wife. Before I started to train for ordination, I would take the dogs to the vets and they'd get their injections and stronghold to help cure the fleas. When I was at Ridley, Jeremy took on that responsibility and they were both living together again full time. We seemed to not be able to communicate about who is doing what. So the fleas had gone untreated. And it was only a son returning home who alerted us to the facts of the condition of our dogs. I know it's quite a ridiculous story to start with, and some of you have politely giggled, but it is a really ridiculous way to start a sermon, really, isn't it? But I just wanted to sort of say that if communication between one husband and one wife is difficult, how on earth could it be between one wife and seven husbands? You see, the Sadducees brought this really quite ridiculous question to Jesus because they wanted to trap him. You listened to the context, you listened to the scenario of a wife being given brother after brother in marriage following the death of his older brother. Jesus, They say to Jesus, in the resurrection then, whose wife of the seven will she be? For all of them had married her. I really also don't need to say that we have quite significant cultural differences between this story and the context it was in and that we find ourselves in today. In these times, women were treated not much better than property, really, at times. Definitely not of an equal status to men. And this type of marriage where the woman would be passed down to another brother was actually supposed to provide an heir for a man who had died childless, so preserving his name and his material inheritance. It quite possibly wasn't in existence at the time of Jesus. There are two instances in the Old Testament when it is written that it did happen. One is in Genesis with the story of Tamar, and the other in the book of Ruth, if you would like to read about them. The Sadducees were a group of quite political and religious men. They preserved the authority of the written word, particularly the first five books of what we now have as our Old Testament. They denied God's involvement in everyday life. They didn't believe in the resurrection, which is what was in our text today, or of an afterlife, or of the existence of a spiritual realm. And actually, we know nothing of their existence after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, so they too didn't last long. To this conundrum, to this question that the Sadducees give Jesus, Jesus says, you are wrong. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels. Angels. Many people today, whether Christian or not, have married more than once. So we have the conundrum, if successive marriages become at the same time in heaven, what would that do for the nature of the marriage relationship? In the Church of England today, marriage is between a man and a woman. It's for sexual union and procreation. What we know from this text is that in heaven, things are going to be different, because that exclusiveness of that relationship between one man and a one woman, which is very closely and jealously guarded today, is no longer going to apply. So some of you might be rejoicing at this. True, some of you might. And some of you might also be quite saddened. And that will speak probably about what you think of marriage and perhaps the experience you have had. And I can't carry on talking about that. That's for another time and place. But there will be a reordering of relationships in eternity following resurrection. And Jesus says we will be like angels. So angels don't marry. They are created beings, but of a different order to humanity. Please note that it doesn't say we will be angels And also that Jesus talks about the marriage relationship not continuing beyond death and resurrection. He doesn't say that about love. Love is eternal. But I've omitted some words from the text that I just quoted to you, what Jesus said. Jesus said, you are wrong because you do not know your scriptures and you do not know the ways of God. Funny, isn't it? a reply to this elite sect of religious men to tell them how little they actually knew about the ways of God. You see, the Sadducees knew those first five books of the Bible really well, I'm taken to believe from commentaries, but Jesus, God incarnate, standing right in front of them, well, he didn't, they didn't recognise him. So for me, as I've prepared this, as interesting is the state of marriage in eternity, that's not the question that has occupied my mind. The question has been, how well do we know our scriptures and do we know the ways of God? As we read and pray and worship together, as we teach, we hear preaching, are we opening up the word of God and the ways of him? That are enabling us to meet with the living God today or not. Because we can participate in all things religious. We can look as though we are fitting in by doing the right thing, perhaps even wearing the right clothes, coming to the right services, talking to the right people. But actually, are we truly engaging in the things of God <clears throat> by doing such things? Remember that God works on the inside of us best. And it's not by trying to look outwardly correct where we or he focuses attention. Do remember that text in Galatians that it's by the fruit We are known, isn't it? It's by the character of a changed life, of an ability to act with integrity and honesty, regardless of who is watching and who we are speaking to. Because it's the transformation of our hearts that He's after. Another short, possibly um, funny illustration is that I remember in this many arguments I had with my dad when I was in my mid-teens about going to church, I was a peculiar teenager because I wanted to go to church. What I argued with my dad about was what I wore underneath the choir robes that I wore. And I still hold to that today. I know my dad and I have differences of opinion on this, but I do know that it's the inside that matters far more than what we are wearing on the outside. So we have the Bible, we pray, we meet, we have the tradition of the church, and we have the gift of the Holy Spirit today to help us, to help us understand the scriptures and to help us know the ways of God. But it's it's still quite tricky. I remember when I was at St. Melitus, one of the college lecturers, as we studied doctrine, say to us that actually we have more in common than broccoli than we have with God. Because he, in many ways, is beyond our understanding and comprehension. And we only ever see parts of him and glimpses and glimmers. And then, as soon as we think we know, it almost escapes us. Jesus' answer to the Sadducees is funny because he could have picked up some Old Testament texts about the resurrection of the dead. We could go to Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We could go to Job, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. We could reread Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones and the hope that comes with that resurrection. Or Isaiah, your dead shall live, their bodies will rise. But you see, Jesus is even more clever than that. Because actually, he quotes from one of those first five books of the Bible that the Sadducees knew really well. He quotes from Exodus. He says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? In that book you know really well, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, God of the living, not the dead. So he quotes from a text he knows, they think they know really well, do they? Have you noticed the tense of what I've read, I am That's where I landed first when I was preparing this. But when I read a commentary, it said the Hebrew wouldn't have had the verb in there. So I'm thinking it's all about the present, but is it? I think it's something deeper than that even. Because Jesus' argument is based on the nature of God's relationship with his people. The covenant relationship in which God binds us to him really strongly and doesn't let us go. It's such a strong relationship, it is not terminated by death, it continues beyond. Those God associates with him are with him beyond death. Jesus' answer points to a continuity in the ways of God, from this life, through death, resurrection. And beyond. We have a God we can turn to now and continue to trust now in this life and beyond. We have a God who keeps his promises because that is his nature. So, what really is important is that question of faith. It's our response to who God is and it's one where we walk in trust with him knowing his nature knowing and trusting in this covenant making God and i think that jesus is pointing to the reading of the scriptures is how do we read these texts Are we reading them so that we can recite them verbatim? Or are we reading them and internally inhabiting them and wrestling with them at the same time in prayer and in conversation? So that the ways of God are opened up to us as we read. And I do believe we can come to know better the ways of God as we do this. As we are open to him through his words particularly and we let him in. Reading the scriptures can be an academic exercise, and we have some wonderful academic theologians, but it's far more than that. 2 Peter 1 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We are all included in this narrative in the ways of God. We are invited to inhabit the scriptures as we hear the prompting of God's voice by his spirit today. I've just read a book called The Girl Who Smiled Beads. It's written by a girl called Clementine, and I'm afraid I can't pronounce her surname, so I won't try. But she was born in Rwanda and escaped the genocide and now lives in America. She's wrestling and struggling with how to make sense of her life, her very difficult life. She writes, I had been given a way to go through the world to believe in my own agency and my right to make decisions for myself, but I was still looking for a narrative that felt coherent and complete. Her mother and elder sister Both were Christians, or are Christians. She was not at the time of writing the book. Yet I could sense in her, in the writing, a longing to believe, to get that comfort that her relatives did from relationship with God, to make understanding of the life she had been given and the hope that she could be called to. The Christian narrative or story that we read about in our Bibles is many stories, many narratives, many types of writing all together which tells of God and his people. It's a story that touches ours today. How do we come to know God then and his ways? Big question. It takes time. It takes commitment on our part. It's a choice. It might not be something we always want to do. But if we don't spend time with him, how can we recognise him and know that it's his voice calling us, prompting us, guiding us, suggesting, if we're not tuned in to him in the first place? We are given each other as gifts to talk to, to share our stories, our testimonies, and those things are so important to share what God is doing in our lives together. There will be times when God will surprise us because he's not always predictable, but he is always consistent in his nature. Remember, he keeps his promises, he does what he says he will. And I think that's something we can take courage in, especially when times are tough. And we are called to live following the ways of Jesus. As we've read the Gospels, we've touched on him over the last few weeks and learned more about what he was doing, what he was saying, and who he was with during his time on this planet. We have his example to follow And actually, he's not a comfortable person to follow because he was quite a radical for his time. So again, perhaps if we're just sitting here feeling very comfortable on a Sunday morning, we've not quite got it. We're told to remember the poor and the outcast, to be welcome, everybody in. There's no place for a small clique or small group or that critical voice either. The series in Matthew has accompanied our stewardship campaign. And I know Martin's already referred to that, and there will be more later. It's a time during this service when we're giving thanks. And I think what we're giving thanks for, I hope, is the time of listening we've had with God, both individually and corporately, so that we can bring our responses to him, to each other now. I hope that we've all been challenged to rethink about how we are, we are being asked to use all the resources and the gifts we have been given. The resources of our money, our time, our talents, our relationships. It's a big challenge And I'm thinking that perhaps some of these things that God has spoken to you about will come with cost as well. They might not be easy. But I do hope that we have come to know more, a little more, about God ourselves. I hope that as we have wrestled and listened and prayed, that we have met afresh with the living God who will have given us the possibility and the strength and the encouragement to do all that he is asking of each of us as as we continue this journey of faith together. So the question I started with is, do we know the scriptures and through them do we know the living God? Amen.